This episode of the Religious Studies Project is brought to you in association with the postgraduate programs in religious studies at the University of Edinburgh. David and I are both products of the Edinburgh system. Lots of the other um, RSP regulars are. And we'd encourage you to check out the link on the podcast page this week to find out more about the taught and research programs that you can do in RS at Edinburgh. Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project, folks. It's David and Chris, your favourite Scots-Irish combo. I can't think of another Scots-Irish combo right now. Um, it's good to be back. Uh, the summer certainly flew by. <laughs> it did, absolutely. And uh, lots changed. Um, you know, this, we're going into now year six. Year six. Academic year six of the Religious Studies Project. And I think this is the first time that uh, both David and I have been in... in Employment. uh, Yeah. Legitimately ill-gotten gains from academia. So it's... Yeah. uh, So So that's changed the game completely. We're going to be very conservative from now on. Uh, We'll feature a lot more theology and we won't criticise anyone because then we won't get tenure. And on that note, um, here's uh, the first interview with that new <laughs> that, uh, new vibe. We're only joking, folks. Uh, but it's an interview that David um, recorded with Rob Gleave on Islamic millennialism. So we'll pass it over to David, and then we'll tell you some more stuff afterwards. I'm here in Bedford um, at the Sensam Conference for uh, Millennialism and Violence, and I'm joined by Rob Gleave, who is the director of the Centre um, for the Study of Islam at Exeter University. Yep. And uh, first of all, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks very much. Um, today we're going to talk about um, millennialism um, and violence in Islam, in the Islamic world. Um, maybe a good place to start... Um, is to tell us a little bit about uh, the whole idea of, of um, millennialism, messianism in, in Islam. Is this something that comes from the Quran, or what's the? the yeah, well, there's clear indications in the Quran about an end time. Um, there's a shortage on detail as to what's going to happen, um, and a, a timeline as to when things are going to happen, but. There is a discussion, extensive discussion, of a, something called the hour, and this hour is the time. The hour that will come is the time when, when um, the world will be brought to an end, and a judgment will happen, and um, a, a resurrection from people who have died will be will will occur mm. from people from the graves, and um, and and there's some indication in the Quran itself about some of the violent uh, um, catastrophic events that will happen in terms of um, sky and mountains being torn asunder and those sorts of things. And, but there's not a, a great detail and there's not a description of a series of events that will eventually lead up to this event. So there's a strong notion in the Quran that the world will come to an end. Um, but like many things in the Quran, it's indicative or rather it indicates something, but it doesn't always spell it out in detail. And that was left to Muslim theologians to try and discover what it was um, that uh, 
that the scriptures were referring to. Okay. And, they, and for that, they used some sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And there were sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And, of course, there's huge debates about the authenticity of the yeah. sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. But nonetheless, there was a sort of like a, a residue of, of statements by the Prophet Muhammad which described various things that were going to happen at the end of the world. And from these sources, a number of different versions, if you like, of the end times were, were, were developed in Muslim theology. Uh, and the crucial point is that, uh, that whilst belief in the eventual day of judgment is an essential element of Islamic belief, mm-hmm. precisely what will happen at those end times, the details, the, the sequence of events, if you like, this is not an essential element of Muslim belief. It's not something which determines whether someone is a believer or not a believer. Yeah. So it was left open for the, for the Muslim theologians to... Um, interpret this material in ways which was highly imaginative. There were some stock elements that always occur, reoccurred. The first one was the return of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So this was an important element. The return of Jesus was seen as a crucial element of the uh, of the end times. Which might come as quite a surprise to some of our listeners, I think. Well, yes. I mean, Jesus, of course, is highly regarded in Muslim theology as one of the prophets sent by God. Mm-hmm. But um, the Quran itself indicates that Jesus will return, or that the return of Jesus is one of the signs of the end times, and um, it's linked in. Often, it's linked by theologians to the Quranic's the Quranic ambiguity about whether or not Jesus died on the cross. Oh, yes. and uh, the Quranic phrase seems to indicate that he appeared to die but didn't die. And therefore, it left the way open for a return of Jesus at the end times. And um, it's very likely historically that this was incorporated into the the, the Muslim theological framework from Christian roots about the return of Jesus. Uh, But it was a a crucial element of of the end time narrative for Muslims that the, the return of Jesus will come. Another crucial element was the also the return of another figure known as the Mahdi. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Sunni and Shi'i branches of Islam have slightly different notions of what this Mahdi will do and, uh, and uh, what his role is theologically and as well as physically in the end times. So they have slightly different notions of that. But these two elements are always conjoined that the Mahdi and the return of Jesus together will bring about uh, the ushering in, if you like, of the end of the world. Mm. Um, and a lot of the imagery there, as you say, it, 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 it's very reminiscent of the kind of Christian story and, and the imagery of, um, in, uh, well, imagery which carries on in, into some of the new religious kind of um, millennialisms we've been talking about this week. Yeah, I think apocalyptic imagery is something which. Uh, well, it's a discourse which is shared, I think, across the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim milieu, Absolutely. and used across these different um, these different religious traditions, and reused again and again. You mm-hmm. find it reinvented in in new religious movements within Islam as well, which emphasise the the uh, the coming of the end times. So, it's a stock, if you like, of imagery, which is not exclusive to an individual tradition, yeah. and quite often. The ability for apocalyptic um, imagery to cross-fertilize between religious traditions is sometimes more 
uh, and there's more potential for that Absolutely. than in other than in other areas of theology or in uh, or in ethics or in yeah. law. That in apocalyptic somehow a shared stock of images about the beast, the antichrist, the notion, the return of Jesus, all of these things together um, can be shared across traditions. Absolutely. And, and you also find with a lot of apocalyptic movements that they're quite willing to borrow from different traditions and they don't feel any reticence mm-hmm. about the sources of their religious imagery. That it, it, Muslim religious movements quite often, they will take something which we find in, in, um, in the Jewish or Christian traditions which have made their way into Islam in one way or another through the history of Islam. And they're not worried about the, the sources of these things when they're constructing their end of time narrative. Of course not, yeah. So they make, it makes it for an enormously creative um, image of the end of the world when apocalyptic writers are able to draw on a great wealth of, uh, of, of writings and sources in their creative imagination about what the end of the world will look like. The theology and, and ideas about the, the Mahdi in particular is quite important in the history of the sort of schism between the Sunni and Shia traditions. Am I right in saying that? Absolutely. I mean, the, for the Sunni traditions, the Mahdi is a figure sent by God who will lead a battle and uh, bring about the... Um, the uh, preparations, if you like, for the Day of Judgment. In the Shiite tradition, the Mahdi is the return of someone or the reappearance of someone who disappeared in the ninth century and, and who will um, return and um, reestablish, if you like, their rightful um, legitimate political rule at some time in the future. Yeah. So whilst the Shiite and Sunni traditions didn't divide over the question of the, of the end times, at the beginning, at the beginning it was a question over who should lead the community and, uh, and um, what the role of that leader should be. The way in which the Shiite tradition developed was um, that following the Prophet Muhammad's death in 632, there was a series of uh, leaders coming from amongst his family, you know, his descendants, who were seen as blessed with special religious knowledge. And for one particular branch of that, of the Shiite tradition, there were 12 such leaders. And the last of these has gone into hiding. Mm-hmm. And this is the promised Mahdi, the promised messianic figure that will reoccur, that reappear rather, at the, uh, some point in the end of time. No one knows when, but uh, twelve are Shiites, as they're called, because they believe in twelve leaders after the Prophet Muhammad. Twelve are Shiites have a very strong notion of the patience that's required in expectation of the return of the Mahdi, and um, the uh, internal uh, striving towards a per- to be to, to be a perfect servant. Mm-hmm. I suppose so. The internal striving to be a perfect servant becomes a, a crucial element of. Shiite identity in the expectation of the uh, return of the Mahdi at some point in time in the future. And when the Mahdi returns, it's not simply that this person will be a military leader and, uh, and bring about uh, the end of uh, days. 
This is the return of the person who should have been the leader of the Muslim community for all of these centuries. It's the, it's the reappearance, if you like, of the Mahdi, who is present in the community, but unknown, suddenly making himself known again. So this is a, quite a different dynamic for yeah. Shiites about the end times compared to Sunnis. Um, and and the, since the Mahdi is, seen, is someone who's seen as having perfect knowledge of divine matters, including the law, this means that he's looked to by Shiites as a guide for um, daily living in a way which the Mahdi doesn't fulfill um, at such a role in, the, in, in Sunni uh, uh, theology. It's a really fascinating and I think kind of unique situation, this idea of, of um, the Mahdi being this occulted figure mm. who's gone into hiding but is still... Um, in the world, but just but hidden, and they're waiting on his. It's not. Um, it's not like a physical reincarnation or anything like that. It's a, it's a reemergence of this hidden figure, which is it's a really interesting. It was it was a belief which emerged in early Islam through a series of um, descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, who went into hiding in order to protect themselves and the community from oppression from the majority Sunni community and the theme of a, of a hidden imam who will make themselves known again when the conditions are, are right um, became incorporated into 12 Shiite doctrine and, a, and, and became a, a sort of official element of 12 Shiite belief mm-hmm. and, that, and that, so that's something which is um, unusual since most apocalyptic movements which have a messianic element think of the messiah as returning to earth yeah. from somewhere else exactly, yeah. whereas for the Shiites the presence of the uh, hidden imam the Mahdi in the community uh, means that uh, at certain points they can, they, can, uh, they can find out what his opinion is yeah which is, which is the crucial element for Shiites. How do you know what the imam's opinion might be on, yeah. a, on this or that matter? So, for example, if all the community agree on something, uh, on a particular doctrine, then Shiites have imagined that, well, one of the people who agree must be the hidden imam. Yeah. So the agreement suddenly becomes authoritative because the imam's opinion must be amongst the people who are agreeing. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know which opinion it is. Um, we don't know uh, the identity of the individual. But because everyone's agreed, the imam must be within that agreement. And the result is that certain new doctrines might be validated by a community agreement. The theoretical possibility, if you like, of communication from the hidden imam through community agreement becomes possible. And I can see that being a very powerful narrative because in other traditions where you want to have the prophetic figure who is no longer with you refer to present events, mm. you either have to create a new revelation you know, through a, a new prophet or you discover or reveal some previously unknown writings, you know, that kind of the way that um, has happened in Buddhism quite a lot, for instance. Um, but this is this you can actually quite legitimately have this uh, figure referring to events of the day, um, you know, quite contemporaneously because because he's still around. We just don't know where he's present. Yes, and and 
that creates a notion of imminence within the community, which has become very important for Shiite devotional practice mm-hmm. in the sense that you know that the Shiites, the twelve Shiites, will um, often pray to hasten the reappearance of the Mahdi mm-hmm. as part of their personal devotional prayers. Is that they believe that the that, that through devotional acts one is contributing contributing to the situation where the imam who is present can make themselves known and it creates an internal what you might call piety within the religious tradition uh, which is a dynamic you can't find in Sunni Islam Mm -hmm. because of the presence of the imam in the community the imagined presence of the imam in the community it means that uh, it means that there's a that there's an emphasis on um, on the importance, if you like, of, of ensuring uh, community cohesion. Mm. And does that spill out then into how millenarian ideas and prophetic ideas affect uh, the community? Then, Is, mm. would we see a difference between the way that Shiites and uh, Sunnis relate to? Um, how, how messianism plays into uh, their actions in the political sphere. Well, certainly within <coughs> within um, within Shiism, the fact that the imam is present and needs to be revealed has enabled certain claimants at different points in time to be the Mahdi. Mm-hmm. When without them. Uh, claiming this from the very beginning, <laughs> yes. because the revealing notion, nature of of, the, of of them being present, but then revealing that they're the Mahdi, is in a sense an extension of the of the basic theological doctrine. Absolutely. So you often find that that within the Shiite tradition, when an individual has claimed to be the Mahdi, they haven't needed to claim it straight away, because their presence in the community without being the Mahdi, isn't a source of scandal, if you see what I mean, yes, yes. For their, to their claim. Yeah, it makes perfect because sense. Because the, yeah. the, the imam decides when the time is right to appear, and the, the, the claimant can reliably or legitimately claim, well, it wasn't the right time for me to make my, my, uh, my um, personality known. And so it, it means that within the 12 Shiite tradition, the, the, claiming the appearance of the Mahdi or claiming to be the, uh, to, to be the Mahdi through appearance has a very strong potential. It's like a, a trigger mm-hmm. which is uh, always loaded and ready to be fired at any point in time when the, when the conditions are right or the individual personality believes themselves to be um, fulfilling that particular role. And, and so there have been claims of, uh, of, of people being the messianic figure throughout the history of Islam, not just in Shi'i Islam. But, but when the claim happens in Shi'i Islam, the individual is claiming more than just being a military leader. They're claiming a special sort of knowledge, um, which is, I suppose, akin to a form of prophecy, although they would, the Muslim theological doctrine means that prophecy ends with the Prophet Muhammad, even for Shi'ites. It's, it's another form of divine knowledge communicated to an individual but it's it's high potential potentially well put it this way the potentiality within Shiism for a claimant 
to put themselves forward is always there yeah. because of the notion of an imam present in the community who is just waiting to be revealed. Yeah, you don't have to posit a new prophet or messiah or anything like that. The potential is already there and part of the actual theological position. And of course, the, 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 there is a huge taboo in Islam around positing yourself as a new prophet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because it contravenes one of the basic doctrines of Islam, which is that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, yeah. and that there is no prophet after Muhammad. And so, Sunni groups or groups which have emerged out of Sunnism, such as the uh, such as the Ahmadi movement, for example, have been treated with um, such. Um, strong criticism by the, the rest of the Sunni Muslim community because they have contravened this notion of the end of prophecy uh, with the Prophet Muhammad. They've, they've claimed to be, to have a leader who is a new prophet mm-hmm. in the view of Sunni Islam. You know, the Ahmadi community has claimed that its founder is a new prophet. In Shi'i Islam, the messianic figure is the hidden imam rather than a new prophet. Yes, exactly. Which, in a sense, is uh, is um, slightly less of a taboo mm-hmm. element within the theological framework. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash project rs and subscribing we know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning so if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the paypal button on our website it'd be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia but now back to the episode and to to move to the sunni world then it would be remiss of me if i didn't ask you about isis um and there seems to be some debate, the degree to which they should be seen as a millennial, uh, even apocalyptic kind of movement. Um, I myself would like to hear some uh, from you, your sort of a take on this. Is the apocalyptic millennial aspects of it being overplayed by the West because of um, you know fears and ignorance, or is this something that is theologically driving them? Well. There ha- my own view is that there has been a certain hyping up, if you like, of the apocalyptic element, because it makes good journalism. I mean, it's, a, it's an extra- <laughs> the apocalypticism is always a sensationalist story for journalists in the contemporary period, because it's seen as so out there and weird and bizarre, and um, that, in a sense, accusations of being over apocalyptic. Or the, or the attraction, if you like, of the story of, of, of an apocalyptic movement is a reflection as much, if you like, of the, the state of, of um, let's say, British society and, its, and the, the nature of secularism and the, and yeah. the so-called rationality. Uh, and these are seen as hyper-irrational and consequently extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly been, I think, an element in the attraction of journalists and some commentators as well to the apocalyptic element of the Islamic State message. Having said that, 
there are strong elements within the Islamic State propaganda um, machine which indicate that they are quite willing to use apocalyptic imagery to describe and recruit um, for their for their uh, for their military campaign. So uh, the most famous one being the uh, small Syrian village of Darbek, which is mentioned in a um, in a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, a, a, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad that this will be a, a place where the end times will uh, the end times battle will take place. Yeah. So it became very important that Islamic State captured this village and um, that they used it in their propaganda, in particular their, their English language propaganda magazine, right, yeah. which they titled the Darbit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, it, they are quite happy to try and use that, uh, that rhetoric within their, within their propaganda. Um, the big question is how much of their activities are driven by apocalyptic beliefs? Mm-hmm. And in that, I'm slightly um, less convinced of the primacy of apocalypticism within their military strategy, because most of the things and the, and, organize, and the way in which they organize their state, because most of the ways in which they argue for this policy or that policy or this action or that action, you can trace back to traditional ways of thinking about right. the assessment of of actions within the Islamic legal tradition. They argue using um, legal reasoning, which you find in the traditional sources, and they themselves are always trying to demonstrate that their opinion is not an unusual opinion compared to the traditional sources. So apocalypticism doesn't really figure, I don't think, in the internal organization of Islamic State and the justification for some of their actions. It's extremely important in the way in which they project themselves to the outside world, and this notion that that that, that they can recruit through this rhetoric, the fear of missing out on the success and ultimate ultimate end times, yeah. which Islamic State play a role in, is an incredibly powerful tool for them to uh, to um, attract new recruits. Absolutely. So that. Uh, you know that interest that comes from the media, and um, they, they're doing exactly the same thing and using it to attract attention to what they're talking about. Um, and as you say as well, you know this is this is such a powerful set of imagery and a deep, uh, deep set, long-running narrative in kind of human culture that it always seems to be there as a little reservoir that you can tap into. Uh, and don't underestimate Islamic State's awareness of this. Absolutely, they know. You know, the, the, they have a quite a sophisticated media machine, which produces quite sophisticated propaganda materials, and they know that um, apocalyptic fears are an element within uh, Western society, and Muslims living outside of Muslim-majority contexts um, are, the, are the prime targets for that propaganda and recruitment and. The result is that uh, that they they know how to use that in order to um, gain recruits, and uh, so it's an element. It's certainly an element of their rhetoric and their element of their propaganda. Um, how instrumental it is, uh, how much they instrumentally use it in order to do this, and how much it's actually embedded within the movement is a matter of some debate. 
part of the problem is the actual internal workings of Islamic State are quite secretive by necessity, or inevitably, you might say. Mm-hmm. So, um, precisely what the apocalyptic beliefs of their leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, might be, uh, outside of the propaganda element, is actually quite difficult to identify. But it, it's certainly a form of religiosity mm-hmm. that they are very happy to project outside of the, uh, the, the territory which they control. That's an excellent comparative point to end on. I think it's very important that we don't uh, simply ascribe naive beliefs to any of these kind of millennial um, apocalyptic discourses, be they in Islam, Christianity, new religions, popular culture. There are multiple levels of, of discourse going on all the time, and there's, they're being used sometimes for their, um, you know, their media impact or their interest mm. as much as they are themselves driving actions. No, we, we make a mistake if we think that that an organization like Islamic State is a simple organization with a single message, that, it all, that it's always churning out. It's actually quite a complicated, multi-tiered, multifaceted organization which knows and which through experience has learned what works and what doesn't work in different contexts. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, like all organizations, it promotes itself in appropriate ways to appropriate audiences. And that people are driven naively by beliefs and, and um, ideologies, and in fact, it's much more complicated and they're mutually creating them. No, certainly, and, uh, and we, we, we make a mistake if we think that, that, that um, all we need to do is, is really try and show these people what the truth is and how mistaken they are exactly. through... Uh, through a forceful argumentation that we're going to convince them in some way. No, the people believe things, and belief, as we know, is a really complex set of factors which lead to the to an individual settling upon a particular doctrine as the one which they believe is right for them, and and belief in the um, the, the providential nature of uh, Islamic State is one such belief. It's not a it's not a, it's not simple. It's actually extremely complicated and complex as a process, just as complicated as, as any process of religious commitment. Rob Gleave, thank you so much for taking part in our sophisticated media and propaganda <laughs> machine at the Religious Studies Project. I'm afraid right. it's time for us to look to the future and the next panel here at the conference. Um, so thanks again for taking part. Thanks very much for inviting me. You're quite welcome. So I hope you all enjoyed that interview that was recorded at the Sensam uh, conference on uh, uh, apocalypticism hmm. uh, way back uh, about April I think it was um, it, yes well it could have been the 4th of July or the 7th of April it was the 7th of April the 4th of Ju- July was probably when I got around to actually uploading it into the system <laughs> um, slightly echoey audio uh, more o- echoey than we might like but uh, it was necessary in order to speak to Rob. I think you'll agree it was worth it. But uh, there is, of course, a transcription available on the website. Just look for the link on the page. So thanks very much to Helen Bradstock as well for producing that. Um, We've also had a couple of uh, uh, Sensam calls for papers have gone out in the last um, Opportunities Digest on the website. So do check those out as well. They were, um, if you're thinking of attending, they're free. Um, and they're also available, all of 
all of the interviews, uh, sorry, all of the presentations that they do are streamed live at the time and then put up in high quality later on on YouTube. So, you know, do get involved. It's well worth it. Yeah, so you can um, you can go on there and hear um, my good friend, Dr. David Robertson, speaking. Um, just to flag up what's coming next week, we've got uh, a new interviewer, um, Ella Bach, um, who's recorded an interview with um, some friends of the RSP, Steve Jacobs and Theodore Wildcraft, on um, Hindu traditions in contemporary British communities. Um, so we're looking forward to bringing you that next week. Um, and we've just both recently been at the the BASR conference our beneficent sponsors um down in Chester we we recorded about 60 gigabytes of data when we were there Chris could you believe that well you recorded about 60 yeah you were involved in some of that (laughs) at least peripherally um but yeah so Christmas special uh video roundtable on uh, Edward Tyler, uh, we've got, uh, Brianne was there, did an interview for us, uh, Jonathan was rushing around videoing everybody, so we've got lots of stuff to come um, over, Pro- well, probably the, uh, this year, but we're, we've got so many interviews at this point in the bag that we're starting to schedule into the new year as well. Absolutely, and um, this week you'll get the first um, response edited by um, Jonathan Tuckett going up. Um, towards the end of the week still listen out for that um, I think that's probably all the news we've got for you this week uh, but from Dr. David Robertson of the Open University and Dr. Chris Carter of the University of Edinburgh thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the International Association for the History of Religions Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.